This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. The TMS Podcast. Classic view from the boundary. Now, welcome to another classic view from the boundary from Test Match Special. I'm Jonathan Agnew. During the Ashes series of 2015, we saw some truly remarkable cricket. Who could forget Stuart Broad's 8 for 15 as Australia were bowled out for 60 on that amazing morning at Trent Bridge. In the commentary box, we were treated to some wonderful guests over the course of that summer as well. Sir Sam Mendes is one of Britain's greatest filmmakers, an Oscar winner many times over for his work on films such as American Beauty, Road to Perdition and, of course, two films in the James Bond series. The second of these 007 works, Spectre, was to be released later in 2015. But Sir Sam was able to take some time away from the edit suite to join us during the second Ashes test at Lord's. He began by telling me about his cricket playing days. I, I wouldn't say it was brilliant. I was a good schoolboy cricketer. I loved it. It was the thing I was best at at school. I wasn't academically very strong at school. and It, yeah. it gave me a kind of identity at school in the way that often being good at one particular sport does. I was captain of cricket for a couple of years the last two years I was at school I played uh, Oxfordshire Colts uh, you know so I was a decent schoolboy cricketer um, and certainly as an off-break bowler which I was uh, took a lot of wickets I think if you're a decent spinner at schoolboy level I think you'd take a lot of wickets pull straight um, pull full exactly hit the wickets and just uh, I got a lot of people caught at mid-off and mid-on but that kind of disappeared when I went to Cambridge I went determined to play cricket and then discovered theatre parties girls etc and I got slightly distracted and I never really was any good but then there was a brief flourish I have to say about uh, 15 years ago I started playing quite regularly across a couple of summers for my local village team for Shipton under Witchwood and we got to the final of the village knockout and because the very first at Lords this was and it, because my very first visit to Lords had been for that weirdly yes, that that's amazing bit, it felt like everything had come full circle yes. and uh, from that moment, it felt like I'd sort of um, come to the end of my you know, intense playing days. And now I play maybe four or five times a summer yeah. if I'm lucky. You know. But you played in the final, didn't you? I, mean, I did. What, what, what were your memories of that? In the uh, dressing well, rooms? I mean, they, the, they treat, I mean, it's, it's a proper, oh, yes, proper it's, match here, Yes, and we were in the England, the England dressing room, which was wow. a great thrill. Okay. But unfortunately, it was, of all things, the day that Princess Diana died. Oh. Um, and it was one of the strangest and saddest days well, I can remember. It was very overcast, and I think if we'd been playing a day later, they would have cancelled the game, but they didn't really know what to do. So the whole day was played under this terrible cloud. So it was quite a strange, strange occasion. Um, and we lost, uh, which was sad, but I think people weren't really understandably focused no, on the game. No. But you chose your spot in the England dressing room, I and mean, you remember walking in there and, oh, yes. and, and, and all yeah, that By the window, I went to get by the window. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing to be in there, isn't it? Don't you think you feel. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 you, you can't help but feel the tradition of, of the game when, you, when you're in that Lords Pavilion. Yeah, and it's very difficult to describe to those who don't love the game uh, and also who those who don't understand the very subtle differences between grounds why this place feels slightly different. Um, when I was a schoolboy, I, I came a couple of times on my own. I must have been 12 or 13. And to county games, you know, I, I used to mm. come during the course of the summer. And I remember sneaking into the old grandstand right. and climbing over the metal railings that, lead, that led to the boxes and spending a whole day alone in a grandstand box watching. And I remember it quite clearly. Uh, it was Middlesex Worcestershire and it was the Glenn Turner era of Worcestershire. Oh, right, OK. And he, he was batting beautifully and 
you know, he made a, a century that day. And I just remember sitting alone and watching it and being absolutely perfectly happy. Yeah. And it's a real golden memory of my, of my childhood. So to come back to the ground that has that personal significance on top of which the historical significance really, uh, it always gives me a thrill. Have you moved with the times? I mean, you've got a very romantic, you know, your eyes were very, very, very misty-eyed there with Glenn Turner and, and Lords and how it was. Yeah. And I remember that old grandstand very well. It's where I've watched my first match here, actually. Um, you know, do, 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 is your cricket sort of based in that sort of time, or have, have, you, have you moved with it? I, I, I am misty-eyed to, one, to, to, to some degree uh, because I think when you first fall in love with the game, that, is, that forms your, you know, your, your central experience in a way. And I don't work in in the game in the way that you do so I don't see it daily no. um, and you know I feel like the the love was formed during that period 76, 77, 78 so the Braley Ashes of 77 I, I have a very very powerful memory of Randall's innings in the Centenary Test yes. in Melbourne listening to it were you on the radio? I, I was yeah. I was there I was listening with, with it too at school yeah fantastic yeah, I mean that was, that was really Alan thrilling. McGilvery and all those yeah. amazing voices and, yeah. and you know Lily in his pomp still and Rob Marsh and and Greg Chappell and you know it, it, that was a special time and uh, and so that you know the Braley boycott both Amira was my you know the beginning of, of my love for the game I do think what's happened in the last 10 years is astonishing and I think it's fantastic for the game it, it is very very tricky because you know social media as you well know has introduced a whole area uh which is very, very difficult, I think, to navigate for the players, particularly. Um, In what and, way? What? Well, I think that there's just too much um, direct contact with uh, its audience. You know, I think that they need to learn a way to uh, wall themselves off from the media and from the public. And I think there's just, it's almost impossible now. I mean, I speak as a filmmaker, you know, you're constantly being bombarded by opinions, particularly if you're doing something like I'm doing at the moment, which yes. is a Bond movie, you're constantly being bombarded with opinion, you know, and I wish it was more like this and like that. And you have to sort of find a way to strategically remove yourself Not be swayed by it. Yeah, because it does have a real impact on you. You read something on the day that you shoot a scene, I, w I hope this one's got more jokes in it or I hope it's got less jokes in it, whatever it is. And however strong you are, you, you are affected by that. And I think that uh, it, it's taken me... 30 years of experience in theatre and film to learn how to cut myself off from that. And I think these guys are 21, 22. Yeah. They know nothing except social media. How do media. you cut yourself off from it? We just, just don't read, read it. it. Don't yeah. read it. And you have to, but you have to be strong because it's so easily available. And it's not just social media, it's the newspapers and it's yeah. the television. And you have to go through a sort of, a sort of detox period, you know, and wean yourself off it so that you can concentrate. And I think that that has really affected it. And I think that the KP saga is a good example of that. That, you know, it was fought out on Twitter and the pages of the newspapers and, you know, YouTube and, and uh, the, 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 the art of direct communications. It was almost seemed to be the last thing that was considered was actually sitting down and talking about it, you know, between people. And it was all based on text messages that yeah. were supposedly sent or something. I mean, it's absolutely unnecessary and very, very difficult to manage. I think you'll see as people become more used to social media that they become better at managing it. But I think what we've been present in the last 10, 15 years is simultaneously the explosion in 2020 cricket combined with the explosion in social media, which both very, very new. And I think it, it, it really has made some shockwaves. Yes. Interesting. I mean, the, the T20, though, you like. I mean, you, you, the, the 
yeah. hard, fast entertainment. I love it. I love the... F- I mean, look, test cricket, of course, is the thing that I, I love the most, as any true cricket fan, I believe, must do. Uh, but for me, the way that test cricket is being played has changed, you know, uh, because of the developments in the game. And they've changed for the better. You know, I, I look at a player like... You look at a player like Steve Smith or a player like Ben Stokes, and they're, they're looking to score off every ball. They're just... The intent is there. Uh, you know... And the era where I fell in love with the game was a completely different... They were waiting, waiting for runs. Yeah. Well, I've got a very interesting... I wonder if you know this stat, actually. This is where I really... I doubt it. I really prove my geekness, uh, <laughs> which is that, you know, as a reader of many Frindle scorebooks of the, the 70s yes. and early 80s, Jeff Boycott, a man close to your heart, uh, <laughs> batted in the 78-79 series, which was, let's face it, not an exciting no. series. It was a six-match series, and it was the Packer era, so it was a very denuded Australian team. But he, he faced more balls than any other player in the England team in that series. He faced over 1,100 balls. How many boundaries do you think he scored? Well, I, I've, got a bit, I've got a bit of a stat that I think this is involved as well, because I know that at one period, I think it was on that tour, he went 530-something balls without hitting a single boundary. Yeah. And that wasn't obviously in one game, but there was a string of that. So that, I think, is in the same run. So I'm going to go four. Six. <laughs> Six boundaries. But it's appalling, isn't in it? In 1,100 balls. Now, it didn't seem... It is quite appalling, yes. But you think you'd nick one time, that could down through well, third exactly. man, How you? can you not score a boundary? You know, and, you know, you, you look at it now, and you'd be disappointed if even Alistair Cook, who yes. was hardly a dasher, went 100 balls without scoring six boundaries, let alone 1,100. Yeah. And, you know, the game has just totally shifted. Now, there wasn't anything particularly strange about that. I mean, Boykin had a bad series, even by his standards, in terms of boundary hitting but you know you had Gower and both of them and they weren't hitting they were hitting 20 boundaries in a series you know and that is completely changed and I think that's largely down to to 2020 and I just think it's very very exciting now and uh, the speed at which look the game is always perpetual perpetually full of potential you know this has not been by anyone's normal standards a particularly exciting test for a day and a half first day and a half but what happened last night although bad for an England fan was it was suddenly thrilling and that the speed at which it changes and the speed at which a batsman can take control of the game like Stokes against New Zealand or Root at Cardiff you know the the you're talking about people changing matches in an hour you know, a test match could be turned around in an hour. And I only witnessed that happening maybe two or three times in the whole of my test cricket Your experience up to that point, yes. which was, you know, let's say Botham in, in 81. You know, he came in at Old Trafford, which for me was the great innings of that series. And, you know, Tavare scored, I don't know, 10 runs <laughs> while he scored 120. And he totally changed the game in an hour. And I think that that is happening almost once or twice a test match now. Yeah. And that makes the game of test cricket for me much more exciting. Yeah. Is it accessible enough, Sam? Uh, I was looking at some figures today that suggested actually the, the open goal from the BBC figures down, cricket uh, on Sky down about 200,000. I mean, when you and I were watching and, getting, and falling in love with cricket, yeah. we were there watching off when Mike is a little flickering black and white set. And, uh, and watching them and, and, and looking at our heroes and, and developing heroes and, and a love for the game that I suspect a lot of people now haven't got. Do you, think that's, do you think that's an issue? I'm afraid I think it is an issue, yeah. And I think that there are some areas the game has to look at itself a little bit. Um, uh, I think 
personally. I mean, today you see that the pavilion at Lords is full, but yes. I remember having a, a quiet go at Roger Knight, who was then chairman of the MCC or president. I can't, I can't remember. Chief exec. Chief exec. Yeah. A couple of a couple of years ago about the fact that it was an Ashes Test match and the pavilion was half full. And he said, well, that's the members. You know, they, they come when they want to. And I said, that's not acceptable, I don't think. Because if you're a young person watching at home and the, you, you're being told this is the greatest game in the history of, you know, cricket or the, the, historically the greatest game, and, and behind the bowler's arm, the stand is half full, it doesn't make sense. You have to find a way to, uh, to, to try and get over that. So I think there are areas where, you know, there is still a, a discrepancy between the tradition of the game and, you know, what it wants to be. Uh, you know, and I, I was scouting for Skyfall. One of the places we considered was India, and I went to Mumbai. And I, I toured 15 years earlier with the, with the Gaieties, actually, with Harold Pinter's team as a player, I mean, as an amateur player, and I uh, hadn't been back. The place was utterly, utterly transformed. And I went to a 2020 game, Tendulkar was playing, at Mumbai and it was completely mind it was a totally different experience and I thought this is this is what's happening to the game and we have to try and find a way to to ride that wave in this country specifically it's possible I think English people do watch cricket in that way with that sort of passion that just explodes amongst the you know if you've been to one of those full houses at the Wankhede presumably I mean it's could you really generate that atmosphere here in England, do you think? No, I don't think you can. I don't think the grounds are made for it. I, I think it, they're smaller. They, they're somehow, it, you know, the, the watching of cricket is a more, slightly more polite enterprise in this country. But I think that we failed to capitalise on 2020 when it was really emerging. And yeah. I don't think still the structure of the game domestically is, is properly organised. So you don't feel there's a big bash or, a, you know, an IPL. There isn't a a section of the season that's given over to it and and so you know there's just this jumble of matches and every year I try and and I follow cricket and I can't keep up with the domestic season and how the 2020s are interspersed with whatever one day competition is now being Mm. suggested plus the county championship and you know have we really got space in this country with that many county teams of course nobody wants to see any of those counties go out of business but surely there's a way of combining some of them combining resources still playing at those grounds but maybe not so much every year and having a northeast and a north or whatever it is something closer to the Sheffield Shield so that you feel like there's a much higher standard across the game and I think that 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 uh, kind of oversight for the domestic game is is something that really is necessary and needed now and and I think you I think we miss it in this country I was chatting to Simon Hughes I know you know pretty well Uh, and he mentioned the fact that I mean surely I I would imagine um, uh, apart from squeezing the orange uh, the finest cricket book ever written was The Art of Captaincy uh, by by Mike Brearley which you I think has been quite an influence in your life hasn't it I mean in terms of taking it with you and and, and using the example particularly that Mike talks about of dealing with people you you sort of cross the bridge into your your own world with that I I wrote a forward for the previous edition I think he's just republished it actually for me it's one of the great sporting books and as I said earlier Brayley was my was my era you know yes. and I grew up kind of idolizing him and I not just the art of captaincy but the books he wrote about the three ashes series that he played in are incredible books and really deserve to be reprinted as well um, and for me it's about more than just cricket captaincy it's about leadership it's about um, reading players uh, about uh, unifying disparate talents into one team which I think 
you know, for example, since Bray, there have been very, very few examples of uh, English captains who've been able to do that. And I, I, Michael Vaughan would be, for yes. me, the last time I felt a captain was able to control such a disparate bunch. Yeah, to really galvanise them uh, as a yeah. unit, yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, and for me, you know, there isn't an enormous difference between sporting leadership and, and directing. And, uh, you know, I said that in my foreword, and, uh, you know, I've said it to Mike since, which is that, you know, you are trying to uh, make everyone, you know, directing is a very uh, solitary profession in which your job is mainly to create a team underneath you. You're standing on the shoulders of many, many other people. And uh, to try and make them all work and create the same thing and work towards the same goal seems to me almost one of the chief, the chief uh, achievements if you've managed to do it at the end of uh, a movie or a play. And that's not that dissimilar yeah. to sporting leadership, certainly in cricket terms. And by the way, one of the ways I learned to, to, to exert authority as a young person and to exert my influence subtly over people was captaining a cricket team. It was the first time anyone had given me any authority. And so I, I spent time captaining a club side, many of whom were much older than me, and learning how to give them some form of instruction without feeling patronised or, yeah, really uh, you know, or bossed around, uh, suggesting things, cajoling, understanding everyone needs something different from the captain, everyone needs something different from a director, you know. Uh, Every actor is different, every technician is different, every cinematographer is different. And, uh, and that's really your goal, is a lot of it is reading other people. And so for me, Brayley was the master of that as a cricket captain. Yes. Uh, you know, he, you know, everyone knows this, but in 1981, he made absolutely no impact at all with a bat. No. <laughs> but he made an enormous impact on the series. And you could argue that... Uh, he turned it around by giving both of them the confidence, giving the players the confidence they needed to go out and play as they really felt. And that's something that I felt Vaughan did very brilliantly. And I think there's obviously, you know, there's been a big turnaround in the English camp at the moment with, with Cook and with Trevor Bayliss, uh, that somehow Flower made them, for whatever reason, feel cramped, feel stifled. They didn't go out and play the natural game. And you had a team full of fantastically entertaining cricketers, KP being amongst them, going out in the 2009-2010 era, well, maybe 11, uh, it was more like 2011, wasn't it, playing quite dull cricket for a couple of years. Um, and I think that all came from the way that, you know, the leadership uh, positioned itself behind the scenes. And you also had a captain, Cook, who had never exerted authority over any team and struck me as exactly the sort of person, you know, in, in club cricket, you go into the the changing room and there's the one quiet boy in the corner who you know is just going to get on with it and score the runs mm. and he doesn't really mix and he goes home early and maybe has a half at the end of the game and he's not he doesn't really put himself around and he's very contained and that felt like who Cook was and to turn that figure around and to give him the confidence when he's taking over a team that he's already seen being led brilliantly by Andrew Strauss with a lot of characters in it the Swans and the, the Broads and the what have you uh, I think that took him a long time, but he's got it now. And you can yeah. see his body language on the field is different. The way he, he treats the media is different. He's much more confident about not saying things, which, of course, uh, you know, is something that I, I, I find very impressive because I think dealing with the media is half the job in that, you know, of, of a captain. Obviously, you know, the rest of it's out on the field. Yeah. It'll be your job for a while now, won't it, dealing with the media? My word. I mean, it's, I mean, it's great timing. The fact it was only yesterday, I think, that the 
this latest Bond film, Spectre, was, the, the, the announcement was going to be released on October the 26th, which you obviously knew ages ago, but we were very excited last night when we saw this pop up. But, I mean, are you excited about this? How does it feel to be almost there as far as what must be a massive project is concerned? Mm. I'm talking about Mike Brearley's team. OK, well, it's only 11 blokes. <laughs> I mean, wh- wh- how many are in your team, for goodness sake? Yes, I counted them. Uh, when uh, we were up for a BAFTA in the, uh, last year, I, I wanted to accept it on behalf of everybody and I I counted them up myself and there were over a thousand really? and you really do feel it and this is a bigger movie than Skyfall it's it shot in more places we were in Mexico City and Tangier and uh, Northern Sahara and Rome and the Alps and London we shut down great sections of London and anyone listening who was uh, who, who was you know whose evening was ruined because of the traffic around Westminster Bridge over the last few weeks. I apologise to them, but, you know, it's been an enormous undertaking. It feels very... I think one of the most rewarding moments as a film director is when you finally finish shooting. Uh, you know, it kind of starts all over again when you're editing. I mean, yes. you direct the movie really four times, you know, when it's being written, when it's being cast and prepped, when it's being shot, and then when it's being edited and, and music is being added, and that the fourth stage is just beginning. So your hands really are all over it, from, from start to finish as director, as it were? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you're, you know, if you're any good as a director, you want to, you want to be all over every department, you want to be... Uh, you know, influencing everything. It's your film, it's your vision. And, you know, unlike the theatre, which I, I, you know, I learnt a lot of uh, my craft, I don't think theatre is a director's medium, but I think film is. And I think you can pretty much blame the director if, it's a, if you're having a bad evening at the cinema. Um, but uh, because I think at the end of the day, it, it does fall on his shoulders. Yeah. Very British brass band yes, playing brass down there. So, uh, so, but the great British tradition bond, though, isn't it? I mean, ha- ha- it, I mean, is that? I guess you have to really grasp that. Do you and say this is fantastic? Wow, well, what an opportunity! I mean, it'd be quite easy to be, I suppose, quite cowed by the fact that you're moving this incredible tradition on in a, in a well newish direction. Are you? I mean, the last film, Skyfall, was viewed as being you know, a bit grittier, maybe, than the other ones, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I made the the movie I wanted to see, you know, and I think I've done the same thing this time. I hope I've done the same thing this time, although it really is just emerging out of the mists in the way that it does in, in the editing period. Uh, I think that you have just, to... You know, again, so I mean, you, you talk about editing it now, but have you, yeah. not, have you really not got it almost in your mind absolutely how it's going to go, or, or can you be swayed in various ways while you're editing it? I, I think narratively, in terms of the story, yes, it's pretty much uh, yeah. you know, set out, but... Uh, as any director will tell you, you know how you tell the story is everything, and the story itself is not enough. And you know, so I spend a long, it's a long, long period uh, with uh, music for the movie, which is a hundred minutes of music for this film. It's a lot of music, yeah. you know, um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of visual effects, there's a lot of uh, sound work, uh, you know, and there's any number of ways that you can mess your film up, even at this late stage. Uh, however good the story is so you have to stay completely focused and it is like kind of rebooting and starting again it's much more pleasurable for me I I love editing it's the best part of it because you've done really the hard work and then you're into you know the thing I enjoy the most which is the storytelling and that's uh, you know I was 15 20 years telling stories in the theater and in that respect it's when it becomes the most similar to that Uh, but you know for me the Bond franchise as a whole has been a wonderful, a wonderful, uh, unexpected gift at this point in my life, you know, because uh, it's not just the making of the film. It's 
it's the relationship you suddenly have with an audience. It's the dialogue you have from the beginning of the process to the end. Because you have to embrace the fact that everything you do is, is going to be reviewed and debated from the title to the music to the casting to the trailer to the Social poster. media will be all over it. Everything, so, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think um, you know Ian Fleming? Do, do, I do, feel do you like think you know him? I think I know him a little bit better, having read all the books again. Yes. But he's a very unknowable figure. There's a great mystery. And I think one of the reasons why the books sustain is that that figure of Bond, there's a core of mystery there and a core of darkness, which is always slightly out of reach, but keeps you drawn forward. He feels a very unknowable figure, ultimately. And that's why I think so many different actors, so many different versions of the character exist, because you feel like you can go in almost any direction. There's a sort of... Uh, neutrality somewhere there's a, a, a mystery at the core which I think is very enticing and it felt for me uh, my way into the whole thing was Daniel Craig yes I had cast Daniel Craig in a movie I made in Chicago about 15 years ago called Road to Perdition <clears throat> and it was his first big American film and then you know the role of Bond came up four or five years later and uh, I was called by uh, Entertainment Weekly by a uh, a showbiz publication and they said uh, your, your old friend and collaborator Daniel Craig has been suggested as Bond what do you think and I said it's a terrible idea <laughs> he shouldn't do it uh, and then uh, because for, for me at the time I thought Bond had become uh, you know the opposite of what Daniel was uh, kind of uh, slightly disengaged urbane jokey eyebrow raising you know uh, you know a, a pastiche in a way yeah and I felt Daniel's reality and his uh, passion and his sort of uh, honesty as an actor would not work in that. But of course, what happened is the franchise and the character adapted to work with Daniel. And uh, and so uh, then I saw Casino Royale and I thought, what a fantastic piece of casting. And um, and it was that that got me reinterested in, in Bond as a as a movie, yeah. as movies. And, and do you write and create and, and edit for him, I mean, could you do it with anybody as James Bond, or, or how, how much is Daniel Craig the central to, to what you're, what we're going to see in, in October? It, it's completely central, is actually, it? and that relationship with Daniel, uh, artistically and on the floor, is is the centre of everything. And I think if it comes from that, uh, very, very, I mean, particularly on the second movie, I think we we had a much harder time physically on this film. It's much longer, much more tricky locations. Uh, I had much more second unit work, so I had two units shooting, and I could only be in one place. Obviously, so I'd often be, you know, in Mexico and watching uh, footage being shot in the Alps, really? you know, for example, which is, you know, that's a real mind-bending, you know, uh, operation, balancing two different parts of the movie at the same time. Um, but even though it was hard, it was much more fun because there was much more trust. I felt much more trust from everyone around me, the crew, and from Daniel, uh, because we'd, we'd done it before and had a good time, you know. Yeah. Well, we're throbbing. How much can you say about it? How much, how, much can you, how much can you give away to our, our loyal audience? We've been talking all these Bond films today because we, we thought, actually, what a great James Bond Jeff Boycott would make. <laughs> could, you, could you create a Bond movie starring Jeffrey Boycott and Miss Moneypenny? <laughs> Do you think uh, it's possible? I think, Jeff, I think, I think Sir Jeffrey might be a fine Bond villain. Uh, uh, but you know, you, someone said to me, "Oh, they're they're they're, they're riffing about uh, Bond titles that might be appropriate for boycott as Bond." Yes. You know, and I think of social media. You know, I think a little campaign boycott should be Bond. I think you should launch that. But uh, oh. but there is one, isn't there? Uh, Doctor No. Yes. <laughs> Doctor No Run. I think it was exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, so, 
Yeah, I think... Uh, but the music, the song is sung in credit. I mean, you can't tell anything about that. No, I can't. I, I'm sorry to frustrate you. Uh, but I can say that it's been the song's been recorded and it's fantastic and i'm very excited about it <laughs> it's not much but it's something yes uh and uh you know you won't have to wait long that's blow felt i mean we've got henry with there's his only head. one blow felt for me and he's he's, he's <laughs> dressed in a mustard suit and he's sitting right behind me but, he'd be uh, but i believe is it not the case that there is some relationship between the Blofelds and the flemings isn't that uh, uh yeah my, my father and uh, ian were at school together and um, he, he named a number of his villains after people he didn't particularly get on with at school. <laughs> Although when, when he, um, Ernst Stavro and his white cat appeared for the first time, didn't they, in Thunderball? And, I th- and Ian and my father exchanged letters very good humouredly, which I think is still my nephew or my brother of still really? got. And I met Ian, in fact, in, 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 in the West Indies on my first honeymoon in Jamaica. And I was staying at Ocherius at Jamaica Inn and... Um, he uh, rang up because I'd met him in, in Bulls in London, club long to. And um, he said, come to lunch. We went to lunch. And he told me the, the lovely story of uh, after, uh, uh, before lunch, we were standing outside at Goldeneye, which then was very ramshackle and run down. Right. And he said, I don't think I ever told you how Ernst Stavro came into being. And I said, no, you didn't. He said, well, I um, started to write a book after dinner, having had dinner at home one night. And it became published as Thunderball. He said, I wanted early on evil name, and I couldn't think of one. And he said, I went to bed scratching my head, which isn't always the best way of getting to sleep, and woke up in the morning and still couldn't think of one, and caught a taxi to my club and picked, sat in a, gratefully in a leather armchair, picked up the membership list, and with thumb through it alphabetically looking for an evil name. And I got to the bees. I was confronted <laughs> by a phalanx of three blowfelds. And he said, in his own words, he said, I slammed the book shut, gave a yelp of delight, ordered a mind of champagne and never look back. That's a fantastic story. <laughs> well, there it story. is. <laughs> so you're directly related. Directly related. We, my uncle. To the greatest supervillain in history. But none of none of my family have ever, ever owned a white cat, I don't think. Oh, well, well, that's just, you know. But at that lunch, right I must lunch. quickly say before we go on, the principal guest, about 20 people in the garden, was Noel Coward. Wow. So that was, that's another story. That's not a bad series of names to draw off, is <laughs> no, it? No, <laughs> could, could you do another? I mean, it's it such a massive project, this. Could, could, could you imagine there is another Bond movie? After this one, I know it hasn't come out yet. But, uh. I, I, uh, I said no to the last one and then ended up doing it and was, you know, roy- pilloried by all my friends, <laughs> including Atherton, who uh, yes. was taking great pleasure in, uh, in, in reminding me that I said no to the last one and ended up doing it. But I do think this is probably it. I think... I think five years, you know, for the two movies, and it feels now almost, even though we've only just finished shooting it, like one big experience, and it was a fantastic, life-changing thing. But I don't think I could, I could go down that road again. It really is, you know, you, it's more a lifestyle choice than a yes. job. I mean, you, you do have to put everything else on hold. So you have done nothing in the meantime, really, apart from have just totally dedicated. I, to I did a, I did a production of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory yes, uh, that's still running at the Theatre Royal Jury Lane. Uh, between the two, uh, but I spent uh, several, a couple of years before doing Skyfall planning and, and helping to write that or help uh, supervising the writing of that so that that was something that overlapped uh, but no it's it's uh, it's pretty much yeah. all-encompassing and live i want one of these enormous production theatrical productions that you've done um you know live on stage as opposed to you know the red carpet <laughs> display that there'll be no doubt for, for for this um does live get you more the live performance yes i think that the places that I'm happiest, I'm happiest rehearsing a play or editing a movie. And I think that when I've finished a movie, I generally uh, 
you know, want to be back in a theatre environment again. It feels like home, it feels controllable after the chaos of a movie set. Um, but, but it won't be long before I want to do another film, and I'm very, very fortunate to be able to go back and forth between the two. Well, wasn't that a fascinating insight into the world of filmmaking? So Sam Mendes kept his word and has handed over the reins of directing the James Bond series. He's been busy, though, directing the brilliant 1917 that won three Oscars in 2020. If you enjoyed that interview, there are many more from the Test Match special archive. How about this from 2012, when I was joined by the rock star Alice Cooper? I don't know why they're called silly. They're not as silly as they look. Well, you know, they, they are. Should have like very big close. red noses, and that'd be silly, you know. <laughs> but they're very close to being <laughs> to being hit. You see, that's why they're silly. They're, that's, they're, that is silly to be that close yes. to the batter. Yes. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, that's why it's called. But it, it is very traditional, isn't it? I mean, look. I mean. When do you old rockers stop being rockers? You know, when, when, I, when do you have your hair cut? First of all, there's, when not you take the leathers one, off? there's not one guy I know in rock and roll that doesn't want to play a professional sport. Almost every do American... You know, someone else said that. It's, who it's, it's who true. Came on it's true, and almost all of these guys would rather be in a band. They, yes, they all play they, an instrument. one or two of them are in bands. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing that when we meet a baseball player or a football player or a basketball player... They all go, all they want to know about is the music. Hey, I play bass, you know, and I play drums. And I, and we're all going, well, what's it like to hit a three-pointer? Or what's it like to, you know, to swing at a 100-mile-an-hour fastball? Yeah. You know, so I think most guys in bands played sports as kids and were usually pretty good. Yes. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it, it connects up. Yeah, you're, you're right about sports. Only cricket is a music. They, they, they are. I mean, Graham Swan, you'd have seen bowling his spinners there. He's, yeah. a, he, he's in a band. Yeah, I would believe that, and I understand this guy Peterson is a rocker. <laughs> he's, that's one word for is him. That that I don't know if he... Did I say rocker or did I say, no, should well, I say I, another I, word? I think probably stick with rocker at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure you don't miss a thing from the Test Match Special Archive and also our regular podcasts, just hit the subscribe button on BBC Sounds. Classic View from the Boundary on BBC Sounds. Alan Shearer and Ian Wright are in my kitchen. Mm. What's going on here? The all-new Match of the Day Top 10 podcast, answering a huge football question every week. This has not been easy, has it? Like the Top 10 Premier League strikers. Firstly, I think it's really hard to have Shearer anywhere near the Top 10. <laughs> the Match of the Day Top 10 podcast. Only available on BBC Sounds.